Chapter Two of the Land of Little Rain by Mary Hunter Austin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Water Trails of the Ceriso. By the end of the dry season, the water trails of the Ceriso are worn to a white ribbon in the leaning grass, spread out faint and fanwise towards the homes of gopher and ground rat and squirrel. But however faint to man-sight, they are sufficiently plain to the furred and feathered folk who travel them. Getting down to the eye-level of rat and squirrel kind, one perceives what might easily be wide and winding roads to us if they occurred in thick plantations of trees three times the height of a man. It needs but a slender thread of barrenness to make a mouse trail in the forest of the sod. To the little people, the water trails are as country roads with scents as signboards. It seems that man height is the least fortunate of all heights from which to study trails. It is better to go up the front of some tall hill, say the spur of Black Mountain, looking back and down across the hollow of the Ceriso. Strange how long the soil keeps the impression of any continuous treading, even after grass has overgrown it. Twenty years since, a brief heyday of mining at Black Mountain made a stage road across the Ceriso, yet the parallel lines that are the wheel traces show from the height dark and well-defined. A foot in the Ceriso, one looks in vain for any sign of it. So all the paths that wild creatures use going down to the Lone Tree Spring are mapped out whitely from this level, which is also the level of the hawks. There is little water in the Ceriso at the best of times, and that little brackish and smelling vilely. But by a lone juniper, where the rim of the Ceriso breaks away to the lower country, there is a perpetual rill of fresh, sweet drink in the midst of lush grass and watercress. In the dry season, there is no water else for a man's long journey of a day. East to the foot of Black Mountain, and north and south without counting, are the burrows of small rodents, rat and squirrel kind. Under the sage are the shallow forms of the jackrabbits, and in the dry banks of washes, and among the strewn fragments of black rock, layers of bobcat, fox, and coyote. The coyote is your true water witch, one who snuffs and paws, snuffs and paws again at the smallest spot of moisture-scented earth, until he has freed the blind water from the soil. Many water-holes are no more than this detected by the lean hobo of the hills, in localities where not even an Indian would look for it. It is the opinion of many wise and busy people that the hill folk pass the ten-month interval between the end and renewal of winter rains with no drink. But your true idler, with days and nights to spend beside the water trails, will not subscribe to it. The trails begin, as I said, very far back in the Ceriso, faintly, and converge in one span broad, white, hard-trodden way in the gully of the spring. 
and why trails if there are no travelers in that direction? I have yet to find the land not scarred by the thin, far roadways of rabbits and what not of furry folks that run in them. Venture to look for some seldom-touched waterhole, and so long as the trails run with your general direction, make sure you are right. But if they begin to cross yours at ever so slight an angle, to converge toward a point left or right of your objective, no matter what the maps say, or your memory, trust them, they know. It is very still in the Ceriso by day, so that were it not for the evidence of those white beaten ways, it might be the desert it looks. The sun is hot in the dry season, and the days are filled with the glare of it. Now and again some unseen coyote signals his pack in a long-drawn, dolorous whine that comes from no determinate point, but nothing stirs much before mid-afternoon. It is a sign when there begin to be hawks skimming above the sage that the little people are going about their business. We have fallen on a very careless usage speaking of wild creatures as if they were bound by some such limitation as hampers clockwork. When we say of one and another that they are night prowlers, it is perhaps true only as the things they feed upon are more easily come by in the dark, and they well know how to adjust themselves to conditions wherein food is more plentiful by day. And their accustomed performance is very much a matter of keen eye, keener scent, quick ear, and a better memory of sights and sounds than man dares boast. Watch a coyote come out of his lair and cast about in his mind where he will go for his daily killing. You cannot very well tell what decides him, but very easily that he has decided. He trots or breaks into short gallops, with very perceptible pauses to look up and about at landmarks, alters his tack a little, looking forward and back to steer his proper course. I am persuaded that the coyotes in my valley, which is narrow and beset with steep, sharp hills, in long passages steer by the pinnacles of the skyline, going with head cocked to one side to keep to the left or right of such and such a promontory. I have trailed a coyote often, going across country, perhaps to where some slant-winged scavenger hanging in the air signaled prospect of a dinner, and found his track such as a man, a very intelligent man accustomed to a hill country, and a little cautious, would make to the same point. Here a detour to avoid a stretch of too little cover, there a pause on the rim of a gully to pick the better way, and it is usually the best way, and making his point with the greatest economy of effort. Since the time of Sayavi, the deer have shifted their feeding ground across the valley at the beginning of deep snows, by way of the Black Rock, fording the river at Charlie's Butte, and making straight for the mouth of the canyon that is the easiest going to the winter pastures on Waban. 
So they still cross, though whatever trail they had has long been broken by plowed ground. But from the mouth of Tinpah Creek, where the deer come out of the Sierras, it is easily seen that the creek, the point of Black Rock, and Charlie's Butte are in line with the wide bulk of shade that is the foot of Waban Pass. And along with this, the deer have learned that Charlie's Butte is almost the only possible ford, and all the shortest crossing of the valley. It seems that the wild creatures have learned all that is important to their way of life, except the changes of the moon. I have seen some prowling fox or coyote, surprised by its sudden rising from behind the mountain wall, slink in its increasing glow, watch it furtively from the cover of nearby brush, unprepared and half uncertain of its identity, until it rode clear of the peaks, and finally made off with all the air of one caught napping by an ancient joke. The moon in its wanderings must be a sort of exasperation to cunning beasts, likely to spoil by untimely risings some foreplanned mischief. But to take the trail again, the coyotes that are astir in the Ceriso of late afternoons, harrying the rabbits from their shallow forms, and the hawks that sweep and swing above them, are not there from any mechanical promptings of instinct, but because they know of old experience that the small fry are about to take to seed-gathering and the water-trails. The rabbits begin it, taking the trail with long, light leaps, one eye and ear cocked to the hills from whence a coyote might descend upon them at any moment. Rabbits are a foolish people. They do not fight except with their own kind, nor use their paws except for feet, and appear to have no reason for existence but to furnish meals for meat-eaters. In flight they seem to rebound from the earth of their own elasticity, but keep a sober pace going to the spring. It is the young watercress that tempts them, and the pleasures of society, for they seldom drink. Even in localities where there are flowing streams, they seem to prefer the moisture that collects on herbage, and after rains may be seen rising on their haunches to drink delicately the clear drops caught in the tops of the young sage. But drink they must, as I have often seen them mornings and evenings at the rill that goes by my door. Wait long enough at the lone tree spring, and sooner or later they will all come in. But here their matings are accomplished, and though they are fearful of so little as a cloud shadow or blown leaf, they contrive to have some playful hours. At the spring, the bobcat drops down upon them from the black rock, and the red fox picks them up, returning in the dark. By day, the hawk and eagle overshadow them, and the coyote has all times and seasons for his own. Cattle, when there are any in the Ceriso, drink morning and evening, spending the night on the warm, last-lighted slopes of neighboring hills, stirring with the peep of day. 
in these half-wild spotted steers the habits of an earlier lineage persist it must be long since they have made beds for themselves but before lying down they turn themselves round and round as dogs do they choose bare and stony ground exposed fronts of westward facing hills and lie down in companies usually by the end of the summer the cattle have been driven or gone of their own choosing to the mountain meadows one year a maverick yearling strayed or overlooked by the vaqueros kept on until the season's end and so betrayed another visitor to the spring that else i might have missed on a certain morning the half-eaten carcass lay at the foot of the black rock and in moist earth by the rill of the spring the footpads of a cougar puma mountain lion or whatever the beast is rightly called the kill must have been made early in the evening for it appeared that the cougar had been twice to the spring and since the meat-eater drinks little until he has eaten he must have fed and drunk and after an interval of lying up in the black rock had eaten and drunk again there is no knowing how far he had come but if he came again the second night he found that the coyotes had left him very little of his kill nobody ventures to say how infrequently and at what hour the small fry visit the spring there are such numbers of them that if each came once between the last of spring and the first of winter rains there would still be water trails i have seen badgers drinking about the hour when the light takes on the yellow tinge it has from coming slantwise through the hills they find out shallow places and are loath to wet their feet rats and chipmunks have been observed visiting the spring as late as nine o'clock mornings the larger spermophiles that live near the spring and keep awake to work all day come and go at no particular hour drinking sparingly at long intervals on half-lighted days meadow and field mice steal delicately along the trail these visitors are all too small to be watched carefully at night but for evidence of their frequent coming there are the trails that may be traced miles out among the crisping grasses on rare nights in the places where no grass grows between the shrubs and the sand silvers whitely to the moon one sees them whisking to and fro on innumerable errands of seed-gathering but the chief witnesses of their presence near the spring are the elf owls these burrow-haunting speckled fluffs of greediness begin a twilight flitting toward the spring feeding as they go on grasshoppers lizards and small swift creatures diving into burrows to catch field mice asleep battling with chipmunks at their own doors and getting down in great numbers toward the lone juniper now owls do not love water greatly on its own account not to my knowledge have i caught one drinking or bathing though on night wanderings across the mesa they flit up from under the horse's feet along stream borders their presence near the spring in great numbers would indicate the presence of the things they feed upon all night the rustle and soft hooting 
keeps on in the neighborhood of the spring, with seldom small shrieks of mortal agony. It is clear day before they have all gotten back to their particular hummocks, and if one follows cautiously, not to frighten them into some nearby burrow, it is possible to trail them far up the slope. The crested quail that troop in the Ceriso are the happiest frequenters of the water trails. There is no furtiveness about their morning drink. About the time the burrowers and all that feed upon them are addressing themselves to sleep, great flocks pour down the trails with that peculiar melting motion of moving quail, twittering, shoving, and shouldering. They splatter into the shallows, drink daintily, shake out small showers over their perfect coats, and melt away again into the scrub, preening and pranking with soft, contented noises. After the quail, sparrows and ground-inhabiting birds bathe with the utmost frankness and a great deal of splutter, and here, in the heart of noon, hawks resort, sitting, panting, with wings aslant, and a truce to all hostilities because of the heat. One summer there came a road-runner up from the lower valley, peeking and prying, and he never had any patience with the water-baths of the sparrows. His own ablutions were performed in the clean, hopeful dust of the chaparral, and whenever he happened on their morning splatterings, he would depress his glossy crest, slant his shining tail to the level of his body, until he looked most like some bright venomous snake, daunting them with shrill abuse and feint of battle. Then suddenly he would go tilting and balancing down the gully in fine disdain, only to return in a day or two to make sure the foolish bodies were still at it. Out on the Ceriso, about five miles, and wholly out of sight of it, near where the immemorial foot-trail goes up from Saline Flat towards Black Mountain, is a water sign worth turning out of the trail to see. It is a laid circle of stones, large enough not to be disturbed by any ordinary hap, with an opening flanked by two parallel rows of similar stones, between which were an arrow placed, touching the opposite rim of the circle. It would point as the crow flies to the spring. It is the old, indubitable watermark of the Shoshones. One still finds it in the desert ranges in salt wells and mesquite valleys, and along the slopes of Waban. On the other side of Ceriso, where the black rock begins, about a mile from the spring, is the work of an older, forgotten people. The rock hereabout is all volcanic, fracturing with a crystalline whitish surface, but weathered outside to furnace blackness. Around the spring, where must have been a gathering place of the tribes, it is scored over with strange pictures and symbols that have no meaning to the Indians of the present day. But out where the rock begins, there is carved into the white heart of it a pointing arrow over the symbol for distance and a circle full of wavy lines, reading thus, in this direction three, 
units of measurement unknown, is a spring of sweet water. Look for it. End of chapter 2